one day I got on the PATH train and went to Jersey City and got a real estate agent and looked at apartments and put money down on one and said I was moving out. And of course, the next day I took my money back, canceled <laughs> it, but I, I really felt like I was going crazy. I did a lot of crazy things. This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Doucette, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories, too. So, are you ready? Here we go. Okay. My name is Nancy Shamban. I'm from New York City, Manhattan. I've been here for most of my life, and uh, my relationship to Alzheimer's, well, actually to dementia, not to Alzheimer's specifically, but actually to frontotemporal dementia, was my partner, who um, is now deceased, who developed um, frontotemporal dementia when she was about just past 60. She had uh, developed ovarian cancer, and after 9-11, she was very, very, very traumatized by 9-11. She worked in a school where the kids stood at the windows and watched the buildings came down, and a lot of their parents worked in the buildings. She was very, very traumatized by that, and a few months later developed ovarian cancer. Whether there's a connection or not, I don't know. I think for her... It, it, it was like the last straw. She couldn't tolerate how evil the world is. Anyway, she got cancer. She was treated for it. It took about a year. It was successfully treated. And then she went back to work. She was a uh, what's called a spark counselor in the New York City high schools, which are counselors to prevent kids from getting involved in drugs. She went back to work, and she just wasn't right. She just she couldn't function. She just couldn't do her paperwork. She couldn't organize. There was something wrong. And for about a year, we started going to neurologists trying to figure out what, what was wrong or was it psychological or what, what the issue was. Anyway, she was finally diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia, um, which is a very long answer to the short question you asked me <laughs> oh, three questions ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a long journey, right? So, of it's course. It's a very long journey. When did your partner pass away? She passed away 2013. So it's been four years. Four, four years. years. I'm so sorry. That's still pretty recent. You know, it's funny. I w- was just talking in another group about it, and... Someone said, oh, you know, it goes on so long, it's complicated grief. And I was very upset by that because that's ridiculous. People, you know, people's grief is as long as it is. And it took a long time. You know, someone is sick for so long. She was sick for over 10 years. And when someone finally dies, it's like first you have to go through all of the memories and thoughts and all the things about their illness 
it takes a long time to get to the point where you start thinking about all the wonderful things about this person before they were sick and what life was like. So that takes time. So it was actually after more than a year before I started remembering and laughing and thinking about all of the great things that we were, she was, before she got sick. Yeah, so four years is a long time and not such a long time. Right. When um, when did you guys meet? This is very funny. We met, at, funny and not funny, we met, <laughs> we actually, we met, after both of our mothers had died, which is not funny. <laughs> um, my mother died in 1984. Marilyn's mother died in 1985. I, When my mother died, I didn't go out or do anything for a year. Mm. Marilyn's mother had died two months before. This was the first thing I was going to was this party, um, around Christmas time, and Marilyn was there, and we started talking about our mothers, and we became friends, and we were friends for a good five years. I wasn't necessarily gay. I wasn't necessarily straight. I guess I was right. queer. <laughs> um, Marilyn had had a 20-plus-year Marriage. She had four children, now eight grandchildren, who are mine. Mm -hmm. My, that was her legacy to me, of these wonderful eight grandchildren I have. And um, she was with someone else at this party. And she and I became friends. She and her partner broke up and whatever, and we were friends for five years, and then suddenly one day I realized that this person I had known for five years, and I went to the movies with have fun anyway, that I was in love with her, and it was mm. very romantic, and so we were together from 1990, but we were friends from 1985. So tell me about Marilyn. What was she like? She was an incredibly unique um, and funny person. She was very, her kids talk about her telling stories like they lived in, uh, way out in Sheepshead Bay and Canarsie and far parts of Brooklyn that I knew nothing about when I met her. And they said she was always this very sort of left-wing person, like there was a time when in Canarsie they got very sort of right wing and they were chasing this lovely black teenage kid down the street for some reason and Marilyn jumped into her car, poured the four kids into the car, chased down the street. They opened, she said, kids, open the door. They opened the door. They said to the, the teenage kid, get into the car. <laughs> got into the car and they took off and they just took him home to wherever it was. He, that she was just this amazing activist person. Mm -hmm. And when we, she moved in with me, I live in Greenwich Village and we, we lived in the Far West Village together. She was like the mayor of the block. You know, <laughs> she, she was there for every cause. For She decided that with these teenage kids that she worked with, uh, in the SPARK program in the high schools, 
that she could help them if she became a minister. So she went back to school and got a degree as a um, an interfaith minister so that she could help them. And then she decided that it would help them even more if they learned some meditation like yoga. So she went to the Kripala Center in Massachusetts and became a yogini so she could teach yoga to these huge, you should have seen these kids. The, The boys were like, over six feet tall, huge. She was five two, <laughs> and these kids would like be towering over her. And she would say, "Okay, now everyone sit on the floor and cross your legs." And she had complete control. She she was just a unique and wonderful, and delightful human being with the biggest heart. I never met anyone who was less jealous so eager that everyone should have the best. You mentioned earlier about how um, she had ovarian cancer and mm-hmm. that, that kind of led into uh, the dementia. Can you talk about how the dementia came into being and how you initially handled it? Initially, it was very, 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 very difficult. And I didn't handle it well in the beginning because we didn't know what was wrong. There was no diagnosis. It was very, very confusing. I thought she was mad at me, to tell you the truth. I thought we were having a psychological... I I mean, I'm a shrink. (laughs) So I tend to look at things that way. And I thought, oh, she's mad at me and we need to be in couples therapy because... We're not dealing with things well, and she's acting out, and she's doing all these crazy things. And, mm-hmm. of course, as time went on, I could, I mean, that was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But initially, I felt, you know, she she's really being horrible. She's being terrible. She's treating me badly. But, and then... Was, it, was she being aggressive? Was she, she was being, being like... Like a friend came to visit me from out of town, and we were in the living room talking, and Marilyn was going to be in the other room so my friend and I could have some time alone, and Marilyn kept coming in every two minutes and asking a question or trying on clothes and asking how did she look and being very different than who she always was. Marilyn was a person who was so modest in some ways, that if we went, if she had to go to a public restroom, I had to stand in front of the door Mm -hmm. so that she was sure, even with a lock, no one would open the door. Mm -hmm. When she developed the dementia, she would just start undressing in front of her kids. She lost all inhibition. I mean, that's a symptom of frontotemporal dementia, not necessarily Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a whole bit of education that people don't realize, that dementia is really like the umbrella word, and then under that there are all these illnesses, one of them being Alzheimer's, one of them being frontotemporal dementia. You know, there are several different kinds of dementia. So... With the kind she had, um, losing her inhibitions is is a symptom. It's it's more behavioral. But I I you know I knew very little right. at the time. So um, what was your first step then, as it became clear to you what was happening? Well, it didn't become clear to me right away, and it took me a long time. And I felt like I was being driven crazy. And it, one day, I 
got on the PATH train and went to Jersey City and got a real estate agent and looked at apartments and put money down on one and said I was moving out. And of course, the next day I took my money back, <laughs> canceled <laughs> it. But I, I really felt like I was going crazy. Right. I did a lot of crazy things because you, I didn't know. And I, I mean, now, of course, I look back, those are the things that make me feel terrible and guilty because, of course, it made her feel terrible that I was going to abandon her. Right. And leave her, and she right. would say things like, oh, can I come and visit you there? Can I come and stay? Oh, God. Can I come and stay with you? I mean, it was, it was yeah. horrible. It was yeah. tragic. It was... Anyway, once we finally got to a neurologist who actually did some real testing and figured out what was going on, of course, it did become easier. I mean, it was harder... But it was easier. It was easier in knowing there was a word for it and mm. there was a way to describe it. And I could read in a book all of the symptoms she was having. Mm -hmm. That made it easier. What made it harder, it's funny, there was this this book uh, and this movie called Still Alice. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where Juliana as the character, as Alice, was sitting having an ice cream with her husband in a, an ice cream shop. And he is trying to get her to move with him. He wants to move somewhere else, and she doesn't want to move. And he looks at her, and he said to her something like, is this really what you want? And she's eating her ice cream. And she looked at him and said, oh, I can't finish my ice cream. It was it was a concrete answer to his complex question. And that was, I thought, one of the most brilliant pieces of acting because I had that moment mm -hmm. with Marilyn where it was clear that she couldn't understand a concept where she really was so concrete at this point. And the doctor told us about her intellect, which had gone down a lot. Her IQ had gone down a lot. It was the saddest moment, probably, one of the saddest moments of the whole disease because it was like this bright and fun and delightful, smart person, you know, now has an IQ of like whatever it was, uh, much lower. Right. And it was that, that moment that was one of the worst. But one of the best, funniest moments was the president at the time was George W. Bush. And I had gotten Marilyn one of those bracelets that had, you know, an ID bracelet. And on the back of the bracelet, it said dementia. And to call me if mm -hmm. she got lost, which she had. Those, that's another whole story about her getting lost in New York City. But anyway, she had one of these bracelets. And we were at the neurologist's office. And she looked at him and she said, see this bracelet? And he said, yes. And he said, you know what this bracelet says? He said, what is it? He said, she said, well, it says that I have this disease that means that I could go in and shoot the president and get away with it. So he didn't think it was very funny, but uh -huh. I thought it was hysterical uh -huh. at the uh -huh. time. So, so she had her with about her. So she still had moments yep. of, of 
and it was still fairly early on. Yeah. Um, she was still functional. When she still yeah. had some humor. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And how, is that how she handled her diagnosis with humor? She was very calm. Like she knew its name. She knew what the bracelet said. She at that point knew its meaning. But she never ranted and raved and screamed and said, this isn't fair. And I was much worse about it than than she was. She really never did that. The only time, and this was like halfway through the disease, she was in in placement in a like an assisted living place for people with dementia. And I came to visit her one day. She It was in Pennsylvania because her kids wanted her nearer to them and we couldn't really afford Manhattan, which is very expensive. So I would go about pretty much every weekend. And I walked and she was outside. They had an outside courtyard where you could walk around and she was pacing and pacing and pacing and looked crazed and was walking and walking and walking, and her face had such incredible fear on it. This doesn't describe it right, but it's like she was betwixt and between. Like she couldn't figure out what was going on, and she was petrified. Mm. That was the worst I ever saw her, because before then, she was very calm, And after that, she wasn't really here anymore. It was this in-between place where she just couldn't figure out what what was happening. Mm. Um, And she had the most frightened look on her face that I've ever, ever seen on any human being. And it was absolutely horrible. It was horrible. How did you handle that? I, I yelled, Marilyn, Marilyn, and... I ran up to her and I held her and we held each other and that's all I could do. Mm. It was the worst moment probably. That was probably the very worst moment. How much do you think that her previous diagnosis of cancer impacted the way she dealt with this diagnosis of Oh, wow. Of what a difficult question. Dementia. Um, She was very calm with the cancer, too. I mean, I think she was just a person who was able to deal with what came. And then, so that's a double whammy, right? So then I assume you help her through the the cancer treatment and all that. Yeah. And then that kind of leads to the dementia. Right. And then just as you think that you're coming out of this cancer treatment, suddenly you find yourself having to double down and care again for something else. Yes, it was ongoing. How was that for you? Well, I can tell you one thing is that I no longer cook. (laughs) (laughs) Prioritize. I, 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 um, it was many years of having to make sure that someone got really well taken care of. I eat salad. I don't care about cooking. Mm -hmm. Other than that, I mean, it was, it was horrible. I mean, what can I say? It was, it was really, it was horrible and... It went on for a long time, and I now have a lot of feelings about things I could have, should have, wished I had done differently. I wished that she had stayed home longer, but I worked 12-hour days. I mean, when you're a 
a shrink. You go to work when you can see patients before they go to work. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, when they are finished with work, and um, it was difficult. And yeah. everything I did, fortunately, for the most part, her kids were with me and supportive, mm -hmm. and all decisions were made with them. So that helps a bit, but I think they followed my lead, and I think had I tried to keep her home longer, you know, mm -hmm. they would have been supportive of that. So I, it was it was bad. It was hard. It was very, very difficult. What role did uh, her kids play? Initially, I think at least two of the four of them were in total denial and didn't really want to deal with it and didn't just weren't there and then two of them understood the other so i sent them these two letters uh, explaining the situation and wanting them to participate more and one of them really got it and we are very very close and the other one has never forgiven me. Mm. So of the four children, one of the four really doesn't have much to do with me, um, even though, I mean, he obviously came to Marilyn's funeral. I planned the funeral. I never mm -hmm. abandoned her. I never left her. I never stopped seeing her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that family is my family. We spend all of our holidays together. I mean... We didn't abandon each other, mm -hmm. uh, but whatever his issues were with his mother, I think maybe were never resolved. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But his daughter is and I are very close, and you know she comes and stays with me. And well, it, that says something. except for that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it says something about him too mm -hmm. that he mm -hmm. allowed that he didn't resent that. Um, but it was hard with the kids. I mean, because when she got cancer, I told them when she, I asked them to be with me when we went to the doctor to get the diagnosis. And the girls who were the two that were available mm -hmm. um, came with me to the doctor. So, and after that, they were, they were wonderful. Mm. They were, and as I said, um, the kids wanted her near them. And we kept her near the girls as long as we could, and then she needed more care, and then she went to stay near her son, who lives in Massachusetts. So, And I went wherever she was. You mentioned before that you, you, know, you wish you could have kept her home longer, but you had to work. Um, that's not an uncommon decision point right for a caregiver. I don't think it's an uncommon decision point, and I think it's a difficult decision in general. I mean, I, I now, you know, lead, have led, since that time, I've led groups here at, at Caring Kind um, for caregivers. And it's always an issue. I mean, some people never have their loved one go into any kind of facility and mm -hmm. other people do it fairly early and other people it's somewhere in between Wh whatever you decide to do it's the right decision and it's always hard mm -hmm. I will forever wish that I had kept her home longer mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I could have done it mm -hmm. but it's still something I'll always think about mm 
But I think it's an issue for pretty much... I've never spoken to anyone who had to make the decision one way or another who didn't... Feel conflicted. Feel very conflicted about it and have a lot of angst about it. Not a lot of angst and and guilt about a lot of things, Mm -hmm. um, which I wish people didn't because, you know, you have to do what you have to do in whatever the moment is and you make the best decision you can make. No one preps you for any of this, right? No one preps you at all. It's the last thing in the world that you think is going to happen in your life. And this disease is just such a horrible disease because, I mean, Meryl, until the last moment, was this lovely-looking woman sitting in front of me and wasn't there anymore, but she still looked like Marilyn. Mm-hmm. Um, she was still, you know, this precious thing sitting there, but she was not here anymore. And that was so bizarre to deal with. It was it's it's just such a it's a horrible, horrible disease mm-hmm. because the the person is physically there and mentally not there and mm-hmm. you're always fooled. I mean, you always every time I would walk into the room where she was and she'd look up and and get this sort of bright quick smile i it was probably just a movement but i was always convinced that when she saw me for one split second she knew how did you i mean you're a psychotherapist right so you probably have some extra um skills and and education and possibly resources to deal with your own emotional response to that. So how how did you? How does a psychotherapist deal with <laughs> their own grief and their own anxiety and stress? I think I dealt with it in the same way any other human deals with it. I mean, I when she was sick initially, I was in therapy for part of the time to talk about how I was feeling and dealing with it. I talked a lot to friends, my friends, one of the, well, this is getting off topic, but actually one of the greatest tragedies was that Marilyn's friends basically abandoned her. Um, They were not there. My friends were very present for me. Um, Her friends, I think they were scared shitless. Mm -hmm. And... um, basically disappeared made me very very angry but I you know I would talk to people about it I would um, talk to the kids about it stayed very close to the kids the grandkids as as time went on actually um, there was a point when um, Maria Shriver was doing a special about dementia Mm -hmm. because of her father Mm -hmm. and my grandkids with Marilyn were interviewed I mean Marilyn Mm. couldn't talk but they went to see Marilyn in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. this team of people went with them to Massachusetts Mm -hmm. and my stepdaughter and um, there's she's part of a film Mm. which was on TV which was very very exciting so it, it sort of kept um I wanted it to be a family thing, and I I felt successful in that. And and that's um, also another nice legacy. It's a nice thing to have. Although my grandkids hate to look at that film, they don't they don't like it. Mm -hmm. 
um, because she was so not here already. So I deal with it like everyone else. I mean, as I said at the beginning, you know, it it's a slow process afterwards because as a human being, I sort of mourned her loss all along. Mm-hmm. And then, but she was still there. And then she died. There were no more weekend trips to Massachusetts or wherever. Um, there was no more Marilyn. I think it took me a long time to sort of thaw. Like recently, actually, for the first time in months, I've started dreaming almost nightly about Marilyn. Um, Yeah, I just realized I'm dreaming much more about her lately. So I think as a therapist, I sort of let the process happen. Is there a moment that you're particularly proud of? I am very proud of the fact that I never, ever, ever abandoned her. And all of the years that she was sick, I never left her without me. I hope that she knew I cared about her, although she went through a bad period, and I probably was being bad during that time when I ran off to New Jersey when she really felt like I was mean, not nice, and was worried about my dumping her on the street, mm-hmm. that was all terrible. But I, I hope that she knew, certainly her children knew, but I, I hope that she knew that I was never, ever going to leave her, not until the day she died, and I, I never did. Mm-hmm. So I feel good about that. We're about to wrap up, so I wanted to ask you one final question, mm-hmm. and that is, what is the first piece of advice that you have to give people? Two pieces of advice. One is to learn to take care of themselves because they really can't take care of the person they want to take care of if they abandon taking care of themselves, as as silly as that may sound. And two, not to judge anything, to just mm. know that they're doing their best and... I mean, there is a third piece of advice that comes later along the road, which takes people a long, long time to get, which is that the person doesn't get better. And I think that is a very, very hard thing to take in, that the person is not going to just go along like with a chronic illness, that it is a, a chronic illness that goes in steps downward towards the end of someone's life. It's not something that can just be maintained. And that is very hard for people to to get and to take in. And I think that's one of the reasons that caregiving groups are so wonderful, because people are there and in different stages, and they support each other through the whole process. And that's that's wonderful. Nancy Shamban, thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. This was fun and hard. (laughs) Thank you. I hope it wasn't too hard. It It was great, actually. Good. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org slash podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Karen Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.